What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Commissioner Jennifer Morrison has had a long career in public safety and law enforcement. However, her trajectory as an advocate became clearer with the life-altering loss of two dear friends during her formative college years. It is with this same passion for justice and advocacy that she began a prolific career in public safety, becoming the first female police chief of Colchester County, Vermont, and the first female public safety commissioner of the state of Vermont. Her most recent related efforts in the media are what brought us together, though. The Broken Cycle media team is so grateful she was willing to share all that came next in her journey of advocacy, which includes the creation of her riveting, impactful program, The Hero Maker Podcast. Thanks for having me. My name is Jennifer Morrison. I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire. Athletics and academics came really easy to me. When I was 12, I started playing soccer. It just became my passion. All my other athletic pursuits went on the back burner. I went to college at George Washington University on an athletic scholarship to play Division I soccer. I spent four years down there, and I think my sense of the world changed a lot in those four years. I left the confines of my small town in New Hampshire and arrived in the big city in Washington, D.C. Figured out in the first couple of days how to ride the metro. Thought that was pretty cool and really just immersed myself in the student athlete experience. When we show up on campus, it's two weeks before all the other students come back for preseason. So you really do become like a family with your team. I went to college focusing on soccer and I did not have a declared major. I quickly became interested in the journalism program at George Washington University. I had some fascinating professors who had been large broadcast media print journalism. They were super experienced folks. I really enjoy writing and I really enjoy talking to people. So I began pursuing a major in journalism. And during the course of my time in college, there were a couple of events that happened that caused me to become a dual major with criminal justice as my other major. And those events, one was that I had a personal relationship with several local police officers in my hometown. I had personal relationships with Secret Service agents in the Washington field office when I was assigned to do a six-month internship there. There's a lot to be said about having relationships with people and learning about the job in a candid manner, getting to know people in the profession, respecting them, admiring what they did. 
And I just knew that that was an interest of mine, although nothing was finalized. When I was a junior at GW in December of 1988, I was the captain of the soccer team. And an event happened in our group that really changed a lot for me. It changed the way I saw the city. It changed my perception on what I could do in the future and what my future career path might be. That event was the rape and murder of one of my teammates from GW, Rachel Raver, her boyfriend, Warren Fulton III, who was a GW baseball player. He was also murdered in the same event. Nobody was held accountable. There was no information. The only clue during my time in college that came to light was her car had been found abandoned, stripped, burned up in New York City. I could not get over the horror of nobody being held accountable for wiping these two fantastic, beautiful, young, vibrant people off the face of the earth. It just drove me nuts that these two lives were extinguished and nobody was held accountable and their families could have no closure. That went on for a really long time. This incident reshaped the way I thought about crime, crime victims, living in an urban area. It really propelled me into the acknowledgement that I wanted to be able to help people in a similar situation. It just became clear to me that a career in law enforcement, or at least some time spent in policing, would be a really great experience and that I'd learn a lot from it. I also knew I could help people and be compassionate and that I could run fast and chase bad guys too. I currently serve as the Commissioner of Public Safety for the state of Vermont. I think in every state, it's structured a little bit differently. I can only speak to what being the Commissioner of Public Safety in Vermont looks like. In this role, I am the Governor's Homeland Security Advisor, and I oversee a department that contains seven divisions. The Division of the Vermont State Police is one of my divisions. Emergency Management, which is an incredibly dynamic and exciting division under my command. We've been really busy this summer with the flooding and the aftermath of that. The Division of Vermont Fire Safety is another. The Division of Fire Safety licenses tradespeople in Vermont. My signature is on elevator inspection certificates all around the state. If you get into a hotel or a parking garage or the hospital and you look at the inspection certificate that's required to be posted, there's my signature. I can assure you I did not personally inspect that elevator, but there's things that happen within our divisions that are just unbelievable and phenomenal. Another division that we have within fire safety is the urban search and rescue team, which is everything from structural engineers to swift water rescue boats and people who go out in the middle of the night to pluck people out of a tree or off a rooftop when there's flooding. We also have the Division of Radio Technology, the Division of Vermont Forensic Laboratory, and they have been really busy in recent weeks. We have the Division of Vermont Crime Information Center and the unsung heroes of everything that keep us all afloat is the Administration and Finance Division. So those are the seven divisions that are under the Department of Public Safety. I've been with public safety for three years, but it's been three different roles. I've been the commissioner for about a year and a half. It is a constant wonder to me, the breadth and the depth of what we do. Prior to working for the Department of Public Safety, I served about 28 and a half years in municipal law enforcement. I started my law enforcement career in 1990 with the Burlington, Vermont Police Department, and I served in many positions and roles there over 23 and a half years, including patrol officer, 
detective, sergeant, lieutenant, and then as the deputy chief. Later in my career, I came back and served a stint as the interim police chief in Burlington. And I also served as the police chief in Colchester, Vermont for a little over five years. That's sort of my background. I might add, just because I was pretty amazed, that you were the first female chief of police in Colchester, correct? That is correct. And the first female commissioner of public safety. All of my leadership roles, whether that's as chief of police or the director of the sex crimes and child abuse unit for the county, or as the commissioner of public safety, require strong, authentic, ethical leadership. People who know me know that I am an absolute straight shooter. I don't sugarcoat well. You'll probably see my reaction right on my face. I do my job to the best of my ability, and I try to lead whatever organization that is in a very authentic way. I'm not trying to follow a prescriptive role for what makes an effective leader or a bunch of habits to be effective. I am the same person on the job that I am in the community, that I am in my home, in my neighborhood. That's what has been required of me to be as effective as I have been and to be the best version of yourself and to be fully committed to improvement and learning from mistakes. Surprises that I learned throughout my career is how depraved humans can be to one another. I have seen things firsthand that are literally unbelievable and unimaginable. And if somebody described it to you, you'd think they were making it up or they were writing a script for a horror movie. The way that humans can treat other humans is so astonishing that it almost is like your body can't reconcile, your brain cannot reconcile that this is actually done by another human to a living being. I also will counter that gruesome narrative by saying that it is surprising to me how many people in the world make things harder by not demonstrating a little bit of empathy, trying to get up and view the situation from that person's balcony, as opposed to entrenching yourself in your position. There's so many, not just conflicts, but downright crimes that could be avoided by people just having a little less ego and a little more empathy and compassion. When I was in college and this terrible event with Rachel and Warren happened, it had really tremendous ripple effects, as you can imagine, throughout our friend group, throughout our athletic groups, not just the soccer team, not just the baseball team, but all of the student athletes. And it was really shocking and impactful. One of the women who was heavily impacted was Andrea Schriedman, who was a gymnast. She also hung out with soccer players and baseball players. So many years later, about three years ago, she reached out for me and we hadn't talked in many years. She caught me up on the fact that her career is in producing documentaries and short films, many other things. She's a writer and executive producer. Her whole life's been out in LA doing fancy Hollywood stuff. She said that she just couldn't believe that Rachel and Warren's story has never been told and wondered if there might be a space for us to explore that. So Fast forward the narrative a bit, she spent a couple of years researching everything she could get her hands on about Rachel and Warren's cases and the other cases that intersect with theirs. And then she approached both me and Tom Jackman, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist for the Washington Post, about being the co-hosts of a podcast. This was her idea to tell the story. We were prepped to launch 
And then January 6th happened and Tom Jackman got detailed all over the country to follow various different trials as people were charged with crimes related to the January 6th siege on the Capitol. We were just about to launch and Andrea stepped in as my co-host. So she wasn't just behind the mic, so to speak, directing it. She became my co-host. It was incredible because she had so much knowledge and had done so much research about all those years and all the different cases that came out of it. I only knew about Rachel and Warren's case, and I intentionally did not do further research on the person who was eventually held accountable for their murder. We didn't want the podcast to focus on the murderer. America has this obsession with true crime and serial murderers. So we have a dual priority of leaving wisdom for the future of justice and public safety professionals and leaving little nuggets of wisdom that were gleaned from our guests on the podcast so that we can better equip the future generation to be the best versions of themselves. As facts were being revealed about the case, or as we were hearing from somebody involved in the case or impacted by the case, I was learning the information for the first time. One of the whole points of the podcast is to have somebody with my background and experience be able to react to what we were hearing, in some cases translated or make it relatable, but mostly to react to it. One of the things that surprised me is how much healing Andrea and I have done during the course of making the podcast. I knew that the situation with Rachel and Warren was a sentinel event in my life. It was a horrifying tragedy to be a part of. I also felt a keen responsibility to take care of my younger teammates. As a team captain, it was my responsibility to try to get answers for them, to make them feel safe at a time where they did not feel safe in their environment at all. I don't think I fully appreciated how much this impacted my life until we got into this project. So many things have happened that have helped me heal and Andrea as well. I think we've both come to terms with how important that event was in our young life. Now we've had a chance to take it out and look at it from 31 different angles. And in every episode, there's been some more healing or putting it not behind us, but being more okay with it. It was also really healing to hear how other people in Rachel and Warren's constellation have been impacted. It was very validating. We have two seasons of the Hero Maker podcast available now, and we have tried to tell as full a story as possible about what happened to Rachel and Warren. In the telling, we've had to reveal that their killer turned out to be a prolific murderer and rapist. Of course, we've talked with a lot of family members, law enforcement professionals, justice practitioners, victim advocates in multiple jurisdictions. Every interview of the Hero Maker podcast has been interesting. There have been some really powerful interviews with family members of Rachel and Warren and other victims of their murderer. They are not just going to make you sad. They're going to make you hopeful. They're just so beautifully authentic that I thought they were all powerful. When we talked with Rachel's sister, we learned that if you are a person who experiences a sudden violent loss, such as the rape and murder of your sister, that good communication with your employer is absolutely essential. You need to check in with your HR specialist for 
benefits and access to services that might be readily available to you that can help you in your grieving process, in your recovery process. We did an episode with members of the GW women's soccer team, and we did one with the baseball coach and the baseball guys. Hearing them talk about how these events impacted them as parents all these years later, how they still think of Rachel and Warren, that was really validating to me and illuminating on how deep those wounds cut back when we were in our 20s or just barely 20, and that we definitely did not address the trauma then. Services just weren't what they are today. This is a trigger warning for sure. A really difficult one, but again, so powerful and empowering is our star witness, Lisa, who we interviewed in episode 12. She survived an attack by this murderer rapist, and she is the witness that got him initially locked up and sent to death row in California. It was later that he was extradited to Virginia to stand trial for Rachel and Warren's murders. We spoke to an incredible victim advocate down in Fairfax County, Virginia, Sally Fayez, in episode 15. She is like cutting edge of best practices in the victim services world. And I think that's a must listen for anyone who works with crime victims. Likewise, one of the detectives who worked on Rachel and Warren's case in episode eight, fascinating and some really like holy cow moments when you hear some of the coincidences that happened during the investigation. We've talked to some law enforcement practitioners that I've known through the years, and it was so fascinating to talk to them in a podcast space. I've learned from other people, whether it's about their perspective on how that crime impacted them, or I've learned something about the justice system. For instance, we've interviewed two defense attorneys. The first one did not have anything to do with Rachel and Warren's case or any of the associated cases. We wanted to really understand what his perspective was as a defense attorney when representing people accused of heinous crimes. What we learned from him was that he had been a prosecutor and then he jumped to the bar. He went over to the other side to be a defense attorney. It really helped him with his empathy, even when he's representing the accused, with his empathy of the victim. And that led Andrea and I to have a conversation internally about in the military, the JAG attorneys switch roles regularly. They get assigned prosecution, defense, whatever the different roles are in any given case. And they do that with great success. We were wondering if that shouldn't be required, that if you're going to represent defendants in capital murder cases or a very serious case, shouldn't you have exposure to being a prosecutor and vice versa? Another episode, we spoke to a woman who started a nonprofit to help families who had lost a child to violent crime, but didn't have the resources for, say, a funeral or even a nice outfit to put the child in for a funeral or to recognize the child's first heavenly birthday or their earthly birthday. In speaking to her, we really felt deeply that sometimes the best way to heal yourself is to find ways to help others put your grief, put your love and your passion to work helping others heal in the wake of a violent crime. So one day, Andrea introduced me to someone. It was sort of a short notice that we were going to get an interview in with this man named Jared Side. He's the executive director of a place called the Center for Counsel. I learned about it like 30 minutes before the interview. So I jumped on the computer and I started Googling the Center for Counsel. 
I got tingles in my body. I sat up straighter. I was leaning into the computer, reading the work they do, both with police agencies for police officers and for incarcerated people and people who are in the community, but still under the supervision of the Department of Corrections. For the first responders, the main program is designed to improve health and well-being, self-regulation for police officers. So they're required to actually study the science of stress responses, and that increases your awareness that what is happening in a given situation is being caused by the science of a stress incident. It's about self-regulation. So for the police officers programming, there is this piece of recognizing that you are having a stress response and being able to better manage that so that you don't go into auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, being able to access your good communication skills and your empathy in the midst of a stress response is going to lead to better outcomes, less use of force, and healthier police officers. They've done numerous projects with impeccable research behind it. We're talking about police officers who, six months into having completed the program, are off their blood pressure med. They're sleeping better. They're reporting much higher quality of life and quality of relationships. And then when we think about the work with the incarcerated population, a lot of these folks get locked up for doing bad things that cause them to have to be removed from society. They probably were not equipped with self-regulation and self-awareness. A lot of the tools that are required to help you make better choices and be a productive member of society. The programming with those populations is about teaching active listening and empathy for other people, teaching leadership and decision-making skills that when they leave jail, help them to have healthy relationships, find employment, and not return to jail. I was like, where has this work been all my life? And by the end of that episode, I was so jazzed up about the work they are doing that I couldn't get it out of my head. For weeks and months, I noodled on it. Then I went and wrote a grant application to try and bring this work to Vermont. We are really close to getting the final approval on an approximately $2 million grant to roll out training that is so progressive and forward-thinking. It will, I think, yield tremendous benefits for both people in incarcerative status and for police officers who, as we know, have a very much shorter life expectancy with a whole host of medical problems that beleaguers them in their retirement, generally speaking. So I don't want to give away too much, but that was a really incredible episode. It was episode 14 with Jared Side. It really could come to pass that in Vermont, we're able to pilot projects in our jails and with our law enforcement agencies that came directly from the Hero Maker podcast. I would love to see the justice system become much more elastic and able to adapt without it having to go so far to the other side, the pendulum swings so far that we end up not serving victims. People frequently don't even report crimes. They say, oh, nobody's going to do anything about it, whether that's because they don't believe the police will do anything about it, or they don't believe a prosecutor will charge it, or they don't believe a judge will hold the person accountable. I can't answer for that, but there is a perception that it just doesn't matter anymore because nobody's held accountable unless they do something so monstrous that there's no choice but to put the person in a secure environment. 
So I'd like to see the system become more elastic and be able to develop and grow in ways that are measured and that they are evidence-based. I would also like to see in terms of the public safety space, much more frequent discussion about the intersection of public health and public safety because they go hand in hand and we treat them in silos right now. The other thing I'd like to see is an end to the polarization of discussions around policing. We need to work with the community to deliver not just law enforcement, because enforcement is actually a very teeny tiny piece of the role that the police play, but to deliver the services, to deliver the safety, to show up when they need us, whether it's a crash or something else, to prioritize as a community what the appropriate role of police is. We've got to find the space in the middle that meets a community's needs and provide some predictability and reliability for our communities. One of the interviews that I really loved was with the woman who's the executive director of the Pointer Institute. The Pointer Institute is the center to study the ethics of journalism and media in the United States. And we had a fascinating discussion with her about ethical responsibility of the media in reporting crime. The Pointer Institute actually has a workshop program that they run and they charge a small fee if a cross-organizational group from a journalism outlet are willing to attend together. So like an editor, a publisher, and perhaps somebody who covers criminal justice or municipal affairs, if they're willing to attend, they go to a training on how their role can help improve public health in the way they cover public safety and crime reporting. So the Pointer Institute, I thought, was super fascinating. And there's a lot of fertile ground that we could use from that interview to improve how we report crime in our media. You have, I'm sure, gotten some perspective of the news in a true crime sense. From that perspective, being out there with people experiencing these true crimes, quote unquote, What is your perspective of how the media reacts to that? And what would you like to change? I really appreciate this question. It's really easy to just say the media is salacious. They're driven by click rate. So they put these dramatic headlines. That's the easy answer. But in fact, the people are the problem too, because people love that gory stuff and they want to hear about it. But what we really should be thinking about a lot is What is the intersection of public health and public safety? How do we communicate with our public about what's happening, whether it's murder or a spike in domestic violence or whatever it is, in a way that doesn't just sell ads for media companies, but informs the public and starts pointing us down the path of preventing future instances or helping people who are impacted by the trauma of an event in their community, even if they're not the victim of it, they're still so many people traumatized by a big event. We start the healing by the way we message. And the only way to do that is to really bring public health, public safety, and the media into a bit of a Venn diagram and figure out how we can work together to accurately report and responsibly report the news, but to have it point towards a preferred future, not just leave it hanging out there so that People are traumatized and continually traumatized as the ads play over and over or the story plays over and over. In all of these beautiful things that you're doing for society, how do you take care of yourself? First and foremost, my family 
is my happy place. My husband, my daughters, my son-in-law, my grandson, my close circle of friends. That's my happy space and they keep me going even when I am super exhausted or very distracted with other things related to work. Spending time with them and having high quality relationships with people that are not related to your work is super restorative for me. My faith and being part of a church family helps me stay centered. It helps remind me that I'm not the boss of everything and I cannot control everything. That is a very important piece of who I am and how I manage my stress, exercise and eating right and getting enough sleep. Those are the three I'm not doing well enough right now. Those are important pieces and I need to step up my game there. I like to read. I love to slip out of my life and into a story at times. I guess it's escapism. Young adult lit to biographies to long fiction stories. I read anything. I'll read instruction manuals. I just like to read. Lastly, going and doing things that make you realize how small you are in the world is really important to keeping me humble, grounded. I love to just sit outside and stare at the lake. Lake Champlain is absolutely gorgeous. And I love to go and stare at the Atlantic Ocean and just walk on the beach and realize how small I am, how quick my life is. It is just a blip in the grand scheme of the universe. So keeping yourself centered with an attitude of gratitude is also part of how I deal with stress. You got to try to put a silver lining on all these things. The work is hard. The hours are long. The decisions are really big ones sometimes. And you've got to stay grounded. All of those things are part of the mix when I am doing my very best at work-life balance. And I've got some work to do right now on some of those. I think the balance part of it, it's a never-ending gig. Well, sometimes I do it better than others. I will be very candid and say I am really finding myself at a place right now where I am going to have to be much more intentional about work-life balance. It kind of ebbs and flows depending on the role you're in and what's happening in that space. I could tell you all day long about what people should do to have work-life balance, but it's sometimes very difficult to achieve. So I just want to put that out there that it's really great to know how to do it, but actually doing it is not so easy sometimes. It also implies that I have control over my work and I don't have control over flooding. I don't have control over murders or fatal fires. I don't have control over the things that cause my work to become extremely intense, stressful, and long. Nobody calls the police on their best day. They call the police because something terrible has happened or something confusing has happened or something horrible has happened. So we bear witness to people's worst moments on the daily. It might be the only time in their life that they interact with law enforcement. It's a huge responsibility to not only be there for those people in their moment of need, but to try and find solutions to their problems, answers to the questions, or the who in the who done it. It's not just doing the job, it's how we do it. Showing our humanity as police officers, we are still members of the public. We are still moms and dads and daughters and sons. Trying to self-regulate is really important but also trying to recognize that you can't run your body and your brain at that pace endlessly. You stop becoming effective and you've got to find a way to 
bring things back as soon as you're out of the immediate emergency. You've got to try to get back to some level of homeostasis and get your work hours back under 60 hours a week and not be taking work meetings at 6.45 in the morning because there's no room on your schedule. Some things have to drop off. Everything cannot be on fire all the time or else nothing's on fire. That's what I'm really working on with my work life right now is to try and get some rational hours and do the things that I previously mentioned that help me feel like I'm being the best version of me. If I'm not rested, if I'm not centered and grounded in my personal life, I cannot serve the people of the state of Vermont to my best ability. I don't do social media, so you can't find me very well. You can find the Hero Maker podcast on Apple or any of the places that carry podcasts. Spotify is where I listen to it. Anywhere you get your podcast, you can find the Hero Maker podcast. You will see mine and Andrea's smiling faces, and you will find 31 episodes over two seasons of the Hero Maker podcast. Season three, we hope to be ramping up to start producing very soon. I think you are incredible. Your work is incredible. Thank you so much for everything that you continue to do in the media, in the state of Vermont, for everyone. Awareness brings change. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I can't wait to listen to it. This episode is dedicated to Rachel Raver, Warren Fulton, the seven other lives lost at the hands of their murderer, and the survivors and co-victims affected by these horrific tragedies. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I moved into my own apartment with Kirby and Daisy in January of 2020. I was 26. I was only single for a few months right before the COVID pandemic hit. As the pandemic happened, I think I was even more susceptible to his presence and control and everything because I was totally on my own during COVID. I wasn't seeing family, friends. It was just the perfect storm to happen that way. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.